we're reminded, Lord, what the Apostle Paul said to Timothy in his letter to him, that all scripture is God-breathed, profitable for doctrine, for reproval, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So we pray, Lord, that you'll use your word today to, as we heard this morning, Lord, to mould us and shape us into the image of our Saviour, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Um, for the last three times that I've been here in this pulpit, we've talked about the evidences of the truth of Christianity. Just some of the obvious evidences, if we just take the time to think about them. And they ought to cause anybody to stop and think. Um, for instance, how is it that 12 men who ran away before the the crucifixion, all were prepared to give their lives afterwards. What was it that made the difference? And now having been led to move on to another topic, we, we're going to change the subject. So now for the next few times that Kevin asks me to preach, if the Lord doesn't return first, we're going to work through one of the shorter New Testament epistles. And I said that because we should always bear in mind the eminency of the, of the Lord's return for his church, whatever we do. And also because that's the main subject of the epistle we're going to look at. The first epistle of Paul to the Thessalonians. Now in our church we've got quite a few new believers, or if not new believers, people who are new to our church. Nearly all new believers have questions about the faith. Indeed, as do those who've been in the faith for a long time. And as a seasoned missionary, Paul knew this. And it was for this reason that he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica shortly after establishing the church there. Timothy's job was to find out how the young church was doing. And when he reported back, he had lots of questions for Paul to answer. First Thessalonians is Paul's reply where he not, in, not only reinforced the basic gospel message, but instructed them further in the faith and provided practical application for spiritual truths. And particularly, and Matthew referred to it this morning, he got no clue what I was going to be talking about, how to live in the light of the Lord's imminent return or any moment's return. Some modern theologians, particularly those of a liberal and higher critical mindset like to draw doubt on the authenticity of the Bible and in particular the long understood authors of some of the books however there's little room for manoeuvre for them here because Paul refers to himself as the author in this letter in the first and second chapter and not only that but the early church fathers such as Irenaeus and Tertullian and Clement of Alexandria also acknowledge it has been written by Paul. <coughs> they were in a far better position than anyone nearly 2,000 years later to verify such things. It was probably written about 51 AD and considered to be one of Paul's earliest epistles. Galatians was the only one we understand that was written before it. Thessalonica was one of the first cities to be evangelised by Paul and Silas when they landed in Europe. 
the divine vision of a man from Macedonia inviting Paul to preach the gospel in Acts 16 had directed them. So after preaching at Philippi, Paul travelled on another 100 miles or so to Thessalonica, a port city and commercial centre in the northwest corner of the Aegean Sea. As a port city, it was very prosperous, especially as the Ignatian Way, a Roman road linking Rome to Byzantium, passed through it. Probably the reason that it became the capital and largest city of Macedonia, with a population of its believed around 200,000. Nearly as populous as Stoke-on-Trent. If you can imagine our city as a port city at the northern end of the Aegean Sea, then it's probably one less reason to go on holiday, wouldn't it, Eric? <laughs> so because of its location, it became a base for the spread of the gospel around Macedonia and Greece. Paul started the Thessalonian church by preaching for three Sabbaths in the Jewish synagogue there. And led by the Holy Spirit, he had great success, not only amongst some of the Jews, but also amongst God-fearing Greeks, who some no doubt had converted to Judaism in search of the one true God. But some of the Jews who rejected Paul's message and were envious of his success had hired thugs to attack him. And when Paul couldn't be found, the Jews brought the owner of the house where Paul was staying, Jason, before the magistrates. They, that is the Jews, charged him with treason because they accused him of harbouring someone who was teaching that there was another king other than Caesar, referring, of course, to Jesus. And the magistrates, perhaps not being totally convinced by them, took a bond from Jason and let him go, released on bail pending a trial in today's language. So consequently, Paul and Silas considered it best to leave immediately and went to the next important town along the coast, Berea, where they were also well received. However, when the Jews in Thessalonica heard of it, they went there to stir up more trouble in opposition to Paul and Silas. So, they, so Paul moved on to Athens, and after a brief stay, from there went to Corinth, where he was joined later on by Silas and Timothy. Acts 18.5 is the reference if you want to read about it. So whilst in Corinth and concerned about the welfare of the Thessalonian converts, he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to see how these new believers were doing. First Thessalonians gives an introduction as to how Paul mentored new believers. In this epistle, his teaching is for his young and the faith converts is rich in doctrine and application, accurately describing salvation in its full extent. <clears throat> he reminds them or some of the he reminds some of them uh, the basics of the faith and then how to apply these truths to their lives and he challenged them to persevere in godly living despite persecution and there was plenty of that for these early Christians as there is today in many parts of the world where free speech and, in particular, other religions are not tolerated. And judging by the way our society is going, it might be the same here in the not-too-distant future, but for entirely different reasons that you're all no doubt aware. He extended the comfort of the resurrection to those who were in mourning and spoke about some of the details of the second coming of our Saviour. 
and in addition he responded to the angry attacks of his Jewish opponents, who were jealous because Christians were drawing God-fearing Gentiles, Gentiles away from the local synagogue, a bit like this morning in, in, in Ephesus where um, we had the silversmith, silversmiths who were up in arms. Paul's opponents might have charged that his failure to return to Thessalonica demonstrated that he was insincere. And so he devoted the first three chapters of this letter to correcting this false impression. And in a short space, Paul briefly uh, referred to a wide spectrum of the essential doctrines of the Christian, Christian faith, including the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, the nature of Scripture, the timing and events of the second coming, the day of the Lord, assurance of salvation, conversion, sanctification, the resurrection, the relationship of faith to works, the relationship of love to service, and the relationship of patience to hope. Because First Thessalonians is one of Paul's earliest letters, he obviously reveals much of what he preached during this, his second missionary journey. And the return of Christ was central to this message, as it also was in his second epistle to them, which we may get to, written not long after the first. So in these two short epistles uh, to this church, Paul answers many questions about the second coming. Probably the most significant doctrine or contribution of this short letter even to our understanding of it. And as we work through it, we'll review briefly each of these essential doctrines in turn and perhaps answer some of those questions that we might have in the same way that Paul did for the Thessalonian church. But before we do that, it'd be best to start at the beginning, at least for the Thessalonians. So turn to Acts chapter 16 and verse 6. And we'll put up a slide on the screen showing a second missionary journey. <clears throat> now, I don't know if you remember the COVID, um, the government COVID programmes, where Chris Whitty had one of the little pointers. Well, I haven't got one of them, so you're just going to have to fi find whatever I'm referring to for yourself. So verse 6, Paul and his companions travelled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. So this is Phrygia and Galatia, basically at this end of what we know as Turkey. Asia back then was cl classified as the region around Ephesus, and includes all the, all the churches later mentioned in the first three chapters of, of Revelation, as well as Colossae, and that's at the other end of Turkey. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia. That's in the north. But the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. Now, Troas is right there, Port City, at the western end. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, 
concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Just how these hindrances from the Spirit of Jesus to the progress of these missionary travels was accomplished isn't stated. On his first missionary journey, Paul had travelled to Cyprus and northward to Perga on the southern coast of what is modern-day Turkey, through Pisidia and then eastwards to Iconium, Lystra and Derby, the Galatian churches. Then, Then back to Jerusalem through Perga again. So for a second journey, it might have seemed reasonable, humanly speaking, to go to the cities in the north and then to the southwest uh, of modern-day Turkey, the, the main city of which was Ephesus, which uh, Matthew talked about this morning. However, the Lord had other plans. He wanted Paul to travel, at least at first, further afield. So on the first journey, they travelled to Perga by ship via Cyprus, Cyprus, but this time overland from Antioch um, and then on to... I've lost my place now. <laughs> I've lost my place in my notes, so you'll just have to bear with me a minute. <clears throat> so the Lord gave Paul a vision of a man from Macedonia calling them over to preach the gospel um, there and to include the city of Thessalonica. So off they go from that city. And if we fast forward to Acts 17 and reading from verse 1. Acts 17, reading from verse 1. Now when they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. The Scriptures that Paul's referring to is obviously our Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. And although we're not told, I've got no doubt that Isaiah 53 was at the top of the list of Scriptures referred to, how the Christ must suffer and die for the sins of his people. Verse 3, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus who I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them, that is the Jews, were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. Now there are some today who believe that Paul was only in Thessalonica for three, for three, for three weeks, given that he was only in the synagogue. Three, three times. However, it's most likely that he was there a lot longer. It's just that after three weeks, he was probably not allowed in the synagogue anymore, given the reaction of many of the leading Jews to his message. So why longer than three weeks? Well, if you were to read through both epistles, it's fairly obvious that he knew the Thessalonian church very well. And it would have taken a lot longer than three weeks to develop that relationship that he obviously had with them. And if we were to skip forward to chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, we'd find Paul working as a tent maker, his profession, in order not to be a financial burden on this new church. As he said in verse 9, For you remember, brethren, our labour and toil for labouring night and day, 
that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. It's going to take a lot longer than three weeks to establish any sort of business as well as any sort of relationship. In addition, it's obvious too that he's taught them a lot. Because all the doctrines that I referred to earlier, they seem to have at least an understanding of, given how Paul refers to some of them, only very briefly in this letter. Meaning he's already taken the time to teach them, particularly as the majority were Gentiles, having little or no knowledge of the Hebrew Bible and the doctrines contained therein. Furthermore, in 2 Thessalonians 2.5, he talks about the man of sin and the temple, and then says, do you not remember when I was with you, I told you about these things? Question. How many in the church today steer clear of prophecy? How many of them steer clear of the tribulation temple, the Antichrist, even to seasoned Christians? Never mind brand new believers, as were the Thessalonians. We don't need to know all about, all about that, they'll say. It's too controversial. Let's concentrate on the gospel. Or we don't even believe it's literal, as all that stuff's been replaced by the church. And yet here is Paul reminding this new church that, that he's already told them about these things. John Wolford has the best response to that, to those who want to talk about prophecy because it's too controversial. He said, quite simply, the whole Bible's controversial, end quote. So how are they, or we for that matter, going to live in light of the Lord's imminent return if no one ever talks about it? And by imminent, we mean that just as for the Thessalonians and also for us, the Lord can return for his church at any moment. And just because he's not returned for nearly 2,000 years doesn't make his return any less imminent. In fact, it makes it more so, doesn't it? And as we see Israel now in their own land, again after all this time, as we see devout Jews making preparation for rebuilding the temple, we ought really to be living in anticipation of that event. Another question, you might think about this, what would we do if we knew he was coming back tomorrow? What would be our priorities? Do you think that might inspire us to just one last day of holy living, as Matthew talked about this morning? Something to consider every day of our lives, because he just might. Back to our passage in Acts, in verse 5. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. Paul was reaping a big harvest for the Lord, for the Christian faith. And this is how it always goes when the truth is taught, when led by the Holy Spirit, as Paul was, there's either revival or there's persecution. Verse 6. But when they didn't find him, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason's harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. 
and when they'd taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. <clears throat> and this is the pattern if you read on through Acts about Paul's missionary journey. He preached the gospel. He then teaches to those who were converted the full counsel of God, including eschatology, as we just demonstrated. And the Jews rise up against him and he has to move on. It happened at Berea, his next destination, forcing him onto Athens, leaving Timothy and Silas behind in Berea. And it happened elsewhere. And after preaching in Athens for a while, Timothy and Silas then followed him and they were reunited. And Paul travels on towards Corinth and sends Timothy back to Thessalonica to see, as we said before, how the church is getting on. So turn now to Acts 18, verse 1. Acts 18, verse 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And it's from there that he wrote First and Second Thessalonians, after receiving Timothy's report back from Thessalonica. Silas also came back from Macedonia and carrying a gift from the Macedonian church whilst he was in Corinth. Verse 2, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. And when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am now clean. From now I'll go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justus, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the, ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptised. And it's from here that he writes both First and Second Thessalonians, based on the report that he received from Timothy, probably within a year or two of each other. There's an easy-to-remember formula regarding the writing of all of Paul's epistles to get them in chronological order of writing, as far as we know it today. And it's this. It's one, two, three, four, then two, and one. One, two, three, four, two, one. On his first missionary journey, he went into southern Galatia, and he wrote one book. First missionary journey, one book, Galatians. On his second missionary journey, and he's on it now in the passage we've been talking about, second journey, two books, first and second Thessalonians. On his third missionary journey, he writes, guess how many? That's all right, three books, first and second Corinthians and Romans. And on his fourth missionary journey, if we can call it that, because he was taken in chains to Rome, wasn't he? And he too may have regarded it as a, as a missionary journey because he said that the Lord had told him that he must testify of Christ in Rome, in Acts 23, 11. 
It's just that he didn't travel there under his own steam, as it was after his arrest in Jerusalem, where the Jews wanted to put him to death. And so as a Roman citizen, he appealed to Caesar. He knew that he was going to Rome one way or the other because the Lord had told him so. And if it's in chains as a prisoner, then the Lord can deal with that too. So during his fourth journey, how many books did he write? There's a pattern here, isn't there? He wrote the four prison epistles. And some of the details are recorded in Acts 21, 13, 16 to 31, which we're not going to read for the sake of time. So anyone, the four prison epistles, what are they? Philemon. Yes. <laughs> Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. One, two, three, four. After a while in Rome, he's let out of prison for two years in his own rented house. So we're back down to two again. And he writes two books First, and Se- First Timothy and Titus. Two books. And then he's thrown back into prison again and writes one more book. He knows now his time is short and he knows Timothy's struggling over in Ephesus, pastoring that church. So he writes 2 Timothy to encourage him. And there you have it. All of Paul's epistles in roughly chronological order. 1, 2, 3, 4, 2, 1. First missionary journey, Galatians, one book. Second missionary journey, two books. First and second Thessalonians. Third missionary journey, three books. First and Second Corinthians and Romans. Fourth missionary journey, four books, the four prison epistles. Then he's let out of prison and writes two books, First Timothy and Titus. Then he's thrown back into prison again for the last time and writes Second Timothy. The last three books we know as the pastoral epistles as they're written to pastors. So, who was Paul writing to in 1 Thessalonians? And you might think it's a daft question, but it isn't if you bear with me. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 1. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labour of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father. Well, he says here, he's writing to the church, doesn't he? Believers. And he identifies with them when he says, our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. That can never be said of unbelievers, could it? Because he went into the synagogue on three occasions before he was thrown out, there were probably a few Jews who had believed the evidence that he gave from their own scriptures, that Jesus is the Christ. But the majority would have been Gentiles. No doubt that many of them were as as have already been described, God-fearing Gentiles. But there would have been many others who would have been completely completely new to any sort of faith towards the one true God. 
Whichever, whichever he's writing to a Christian audience, comprising probably mostly of believing Gentiles. How do we know that? Well, if we look forward a few verses to verse 9. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That could never be said of Jews, could it? Not at that time, having turned from idols, only Gentiles. Now, if we scroll back a few hundred years, then yes, the Jewish people were in idolatry. And they were, as you remember, exiled from the land because of idolatry for 70 years. And idolatry was never an issue for them, ever again. They learned their lesson. Plenty of other issues, but not that one. So Paul is writing to primarily save Gentiles. So what's the purpose of the book? Well, Timothy had brought back a report that those same Jews that had thrown him out of the Thessalonian synagogue had now turned on these new converts of us to Christianity and were persecuting them. They were jealous of his following and of his success, and so were telling lies about him. They were casting doubt on their newfound faith now that Paul had gone. It's just a phase. You'll get over it. We've all heard that one, haven't we? There were other problems that Timothy reported back to. There were those who'd stopped working because, after all, Jesus is coming back soon, so we don't need to work. And we've seen that one recently, haven't we, amongst those who've tried to set a date for the Lord's return. And there was the problem of those who died in Christ. Would they be included in the rapture of the church when he comes back? And there were problems um, that were hindering not their salvation, that was a once and for all accomplishment when they believed what Paul reported to them about the life, death and resurrection of Jesus for their sins and their need to repent of their unbelief and turn to God. But what was hindered was their growth in Christ, the second phase of their salvation or sanctification. Have you noticed how many of the books of the Bible were written um, to address problems? And as human nature, we never, it never changes, does it? They address the same problems that we have today as believers. So breaking the book right down at the start. In the first three chapters, Paul's answering questions that they may have had about himself, accusations that the Jews had made against him. In chapter 1, he reminds them that their conversion, despite what the Jews had tried to say, to cast doubt was genuine and reminds them of the reasons. In chapter 2 to verse 16, he addresses another issue that the Jews had brought up, that of Paul's motives, and again gives reasons. Then from chapter 2 of verse 17 to 3 and verse 13, he expresses his love and concern for them. And it's up to here that Paul is looking back and reasserting the credibility that his opponents had tried to take away from him. And then once he's done that, he starts to look forward. And so moves to the practical section. Talks about those issues that Timothy had reported back to him regarding their Christian walk. So in chapter 4, verses 1 to 8, he deals with the immorality issue. In verses 9 to 12, he deals with those who have stopped working because of a misunderstanding about the imminency of Christ's return. 
Then in 4.13 to 5.11, he reassures them regarding their departed loved ones who were believers. In chapter 5, verses 12 to 15, he deals with those who think they don't need to submit to the teaching of the word. Or in other words, the sheep who don't think they need to submit to the shepherd, to the things that he teaches from the word. And in 5.16 to verse 28, he deals with the issues that are keeping them from growing up in their faith. What is it about this book of Thessalonians that we would miss had it never been written? Every one of those five chapters ends, or refers at the end, to each one, um, each, each chapter refers in some way to the return of Christ. And we'll finish this afternoon by reading those last verses of each chapter. Chapter 1, verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. In chapter 2, verses 19 to 20. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? In chapter 3, verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Chapter 4, from verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Chapter 5, verses 23 to 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul and body be preserved, blameless, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why does Paul keep talking about the second coming to new Christians? It's so that they start to prioritise those things that should be important to them in their thinking. Should we be any different? This world is only temporary, isn't it? And if we were to look anywhere in the New Testament where there's a reference to the second coming of our Lord, and if you keep reading, you'll find an exhortation to holy living. That's for the believer. For those who've not yet trusted in the Lord Jesus as their Saviour, then this event is just as applicable. It was actually one evening after a week-long tent campaign as a young teenager when Peter Brandon, I don't know if any, any of you have ever heard of him, one at the back. He's quite a famous evangelist, certainly in brethren circles where I came from, back in the 1970s. And he laid on my heart the imminency of the Lord's return. I knew my parents were saved. I knew at least one set of grandparents, as well as aunties and uncles, were also saved. 
And I was in fear of being left behind. And I was in fear of what would happen to me if I died. Because I knew, I knew the gospel. I'd been to Sunday school all my life. I knew that I was a sinner. I knew that I needed a saviour from the judgment that was to come. And the Holy Spirit used the fact of the Lord's coming back for his church to convict me of my need to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as my saviour, even as a young lad. And it was a conscious decision. And as it was for me on that night over 45 years ago, it's just a phase, isn't it? So it is for someone here tonight. Because if you were to come back tonight and you haven't done so, then there's absolutely no doubt that you'd be left behind. And as Kevin has worked through the events of the Great Tribulation, which eminently follows the Lord's return for his church, only recently, you'll know what to expect if you heard it about any of those events. And even if he doesn't, then none of us knows if we got, got to tomorrow in this life. And no one wants to wake up the next, in the next life having rejected that offer of salvation, a free grace that God offers to each and every one of us. Trust in the Lord Jesus as your saviour today while you've still got the time, while you've still got the opportunity. As Paul told the Corinthian church in his second epistle to them, for he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And we pray that someone here or listening online will make that decision this afternoon. Amen.